Morning, Bentley. You well? Is everybody still full from Christmas? We're on the verge of a new year. It's an interesting thing, isn't it? I mean, time for the most part is a bit of a constructed reality that we have made. Uh, Time in nature happens with the sun and the moon and seasons and things like that. But these 10 seconds, 20 seconds, 1 minute, 24 hours, 48 hours, 365, these are things that we have made. These are things that we have constructed and they delineate, they demarcate one point in time and another point in time. And New Year tends to be the, the season, the time where we start assessing. We look at our lives and we say, this is what was and this is what will be. And we all go out and buy gym memberships. And by February, we put them in the back of the wallet and we're waiting for Monday. But we're not waiting for Monday as in next Monday to start that getting healthy thing. We're waiting for Monday 2020 to start the new thing. Amen? You all know it's true. But we are standing on an edge. We're standing on the edge of something. And uh, it's a great opportunity. I think any opportunity to actually take a little bit of time and, and think about your life and think about what you've done, the decisions you've made, the things that have happened to you, uh, and do our very best to uh, bring about some direction for the way that we want to go, for making some decisions for how we want our lives to look, how we want to lead our lives for the next year is a wonderful thing. Whether we do it on the 30th, the 31st or the 21st of January, it doesn't matter. I think it's a wonderful discipline to get into. So we're going to have a little look at John chapter 21. If you have your Bible or your device, please feel free to get ready. Uh, We're not going to read it just yet, but we're going to get ready. So when we think about the new year and when we think about what we're going to do for the purposes of, of, uh, of our message today, we have to put into context what's going on for the disciples. So Jesus has died. This is Tintero's crucifixion in 1565. He painted this picture and we see a, a glorified type Jesus uh, up on a cross. And then we look down and there are disciples at the foot of the cross who are distraught, who are emotional, who are falling apart. And all around the cross is chaos. You sort of have a good look at this picture and it's a, it's a wonderful illustration of what did happen on the cross. There was everything from glorification and absolute despair to random craziness that was going on all around as God allowed himself to be killed by his creation. And this death, this murder, made it possible for us to have relationship with God in a way that we hadn't been able to before. Now these disciples who Jesus had walked around and gathered, these guys had been called out from obscurity. They had been called out from lives of of trade backgrounds and tax collecting and and all sorts of different things. And Jesus had walked up to these men and handpicked them and said, I want you to join me. I want you to become my disciple. Now in in the ancient world, a disciple of a rabbi was a prized place. It was only held for the most intelligent, for the most sort of people who had the most academic brain and could think and great orators. And Jesus goes up to tradesmen 
and says to them, I want you to be my disciples. So these guys were plucked from obscurity. And as they've done that, he's taught them, they've learned, they've grown, and they've started to wrap their head around, or the beginning process of wrapping their head around this kingdom that was coming. We talked about that a little bit last week. And as Jesus starts to teach them more and more and more, these guys begin this process of thinking that they are on something significant. They are a part of something far bigger than themselves. This new kingdom that was coming, they believed they were going to be sort of generals or leaders within this group of people, within this new movement that was going on. This Jesus guy could do amazing and miraculous things. He will overthrow Rome. He will implement a new world order. And we are going to be the leaders. We are going to be with this guy. We're tight with him. And we will be part of this new world order, this new leadership that's going to take over the world. And these guys who were plucked from obscurity believe that they are in this position. And then they find their leader on a cross and then they find him dead and then they take him down and they put him in a tomb and it's over it's over the dream's over the the belief of the new world order is over their place in some leadership is over their rule is over everything they believed they had everything they believed they were on was now gone they are in a point and a place of despair So what do they do? The book of John tells us that once all of this had transpired and Jesus had resurrected and all of these things had taken place, we're told that after all of these amazing things had gone on, the disciples returned to their boats. The disciples returned to their boats. These guys went from a place of in leadership where they were dealing with thousands of people who were coming along and they were teaching and preaching and casting out demons and they were performing miracles and they were seeing amazing things take place. The leader's dead. And once the leader's dead, they return back to what they know. They return back to what they know. What's it look like for you to go back to the boats. When I was in Katanning, uh, the first place I was ever a pastor, I loved being a pastor, but I had no idea how to do it. I mean, what does a pastor do all day? It's a question you get asked quite a lot when you're a pastor. So I had gone from being a tradesman, I had built things, I'd made things. My day was broken up into 15-minute increments. I had to account for every 15 minutes of my 10, 12-hour workday. had a little time card, I did this for this, did that. And then at the end of the day, the boss would come out and say, Aaron, I want you to build a truck. I want you to build a tip-top bread van. And you've got 36 hours to do it. And if you don't do it in 36 hours, he is out and he's asking you really nicely, how are you going with that? But he's not. He's yelling and screaming and saying, wah! So my life was this kind of regimented. So I go from this... And then I go to being a pastor. And I remember I went to my little office in Katanning and it was a photocopy room. It was literally a photocopy room. I could almost touch each end like that. And they told me that I could renovate it. So I knocked the wall down and made it bigger and I did all that. And I remember I painted it and laid carpet and I'm sitting in there and I'm going. So what do pastors do all day? So I start ringing people. I'm ringing everyone, and then I'm done ringing everyone. I think, what do you do? What do you do? So I'm ringing more people. 
it was really difficult to learn how to stop and slow down and how to engage with people and how to be available when they needed you to be and how how it was that my day was not about producing sort of something that was measurable anymore my day was about being with people my day was about learning my day was about kind of constructing something that I could deliver at a set time everything that I knew everything that gave me value everything that sort of was a touchstone of hey this is how you know you're doing okay in life when I was a tradesman transposed into when I was being a pastor completely different completely different I had to learn how to determine whether I was doing well or not not based on what I was doing well on before for the disciples, their whole worldview had changed with this Jesus. He had flipped their world upside down. And now he's gone. He's gone. Their hearts are broken. They're downcast. They're frightened. They're scared. In the book of Acts, they're all sitting in a room, terrified, praying. In the book of John, they've just resigned and gone back to the boats. When it was hard in Katanning, when I struggled in Katanning and I didn't know what to do, I used to sit down and think, remember the good old days? The good old days when you get up at 5.30 and you go to work and you'd work all day long and you'd built something, you'd made something, you constructed something. Now I work all day long and I've got nothing to show for it. I've got nothing to show for it. And I remember longing for the good old days when I knew what to do, when, it, when the world had handles on it and I could hold it and shake it and I knew how to... Now I don't have that. And when I'm in that space of flux, when I'm in that space where I'm not solid, think back to the good old days. You remember the good old days, church? You remember? The good old days weren't that good when you were living through them, were they? I remember the good old days. They weren't so good when I was living through them. I remember being a boilermaker and it wasn't so good when I was doing it. But when I was in this state of flux, it was good because it was solid for me. The disciples have gone back to their boats. I wonder what it looks like for you to go back to your boats. What does it look like for you? Where do you go back to where life had handles on it, where you could hold it, where you could shake it, where you felt some semblance of control? Because what going back to the boats is for you will be significant as you move to the new year, as you move through your life. What does it look like for you to go back to the boats? The book of John, chapter 21. We're going to read from the message. And Caitlin's going to read out to us. And she's ready. All right. Simon Peter announced, I'm going fishing. The rest of them replied, we're going with you. They went out and got in the boat. They caught nothing that night. When the sun came up, Jesus was standing on the beach, but they didn't recognize him. Just stop there. So once it's all over, going back to the boats, I'm going fishing. The others say, yes, I am. We're doing this too. So we get an insight into what's going on for these guys. We get an insight into what's going on in their hearts and what's going on for them for how they see themselves and their life. It's important. Hang on to that. Let's keep going. Jesus spoke to them. Good morning. Did you catch anything for breakfast? They answered, no. He said, throw the net off the right side of the boat and see what happens. When they did, he s- no, they did what he said. All of a sudden, there were so many fish in it, they weren't strong enough to pull it in. 
keep going. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, It's the master. When Simon Peter realized that it was the master, he threw some clothes, threw on some clothes, for he was stripped for work and dove into the sea. The other disciples came in by the boat, for they weren't far off land, a hundred yards or so, pulling along the net full of fish. When they got out of the boat, they saw a fire laid with fish and bread cooking on it. Jesus said, bring some of the fish you've caught. Simon Peter joined them and pulled in, no, pulled the net to shore, 153 big fish. And even with all those fish, the net didn't rip. Jesus said, breakfast is ready. Not one of the disciples dared to ask, who are you? They knew it was the master. Jesus then took the bread and gave it to them. He said the same with the fish. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus had showed himself alive to the disciples since being raised from the dead. So the master had died. They'd gone back to their nets. They'd gone back to their boats, broken-hearted and deflated. And yet again, it's this moment where Jesus meets them. And as you, you read this passage, you, you, if you have any knowledge of sort of the life of Jesus with his disciples, we've got throwbacks and throwbacks and throwbacks to stories where Jesus fed 5,000 people with loaves and fishes. We've got stories of him telling them to put their net from this side to that side. All these things are designed and meant to be throwbacks for these guys to say, hey, he looks a little bit different, but he's the same. But we had these encounters and these experiences with him. This really genuinely is him. He was dead and now he's alive and he's appeared to us three times now. So it's not just nothing, it's something substantial. This is the third time that Jesus has met with them and he's making them breakfast. He's making them breakfast. So he's not just a ghost, there's something physical about him because they're able to share in a meal together. And we see Peter who had lost hope. Peter who's the one who says, let's go back to the boats. He kind of led the men in this this kind of act of, of despair almost in a sense. It's over. Let's just go back to what we knew before. Peter sees Jesus, jumps out of, the, out of the boat into the water and runs for him. We know his story. We know that he was a bold and brave man who was nicknamed a, a son of thunder. He was a big mouth, strong, opinionated, first to speak, first to lead, out the front. I'm brave. I'm this guy. Trust me, I will never let you down. I will never deny you. I'm 100% in. And when the pressure came on, understandably so, as Jesus is, is on trial, as he's going to, it's pretty obvious he's going to end up in a bad place. When this happens, Peter denies Jesus three times. That thing that gave him his merit, that thing that gave him his worth, that mirror that he held up to himself, he said, I am brave. I am strong. I will not let you down. He let himself down. A slave girl comes up to him. Of all people, a child and a woman comes up to him and challenges him. And this brave, boastful, strong man fell apart, lied, swore and lied, lied and ran for his life. My guess is part of him didn't ever want to see Jesus again. He's gone back to the boats He's seen Jesus. He knows who it is. And he's jumped out of the boat and swam and ran to sit at Jesus' feet. Swam and ran. I wonder what he was thinking. I wonder what was going on for him as he 
sort of saw Jesus. So we're standing on the precipice of a new year. Does anyone know what that is? That's the bean. Everyone calls it the bean. It's in Chicago and it's a sculpture. It's a big, huge thing. And it's sort of made out of shiny stainless steel or chrome. And you kind of stand there and as you look in the bean and as you walk around it, you can go underneath it and inside it. Every time you look, perspective around looks different. Depending on where you stand because it's molded and shaped, depending on where you stand, everything looks very, very different. And when you're there, you see a lot of people doing this. They walk right up to it and they take a photo of themselves taking a photo of the bean. And then you start to move. And as you move, things look very, very different. Perspective changes. That's a picture of the bean, a sort of longer, wider angle lens picture. And as you look at it, and as you stand there, and as you move around, the city looks completely different depending on which part and which angle that you're standing on. As you think about your life and as you think about 2018 and as you think about what's happened and you think about the decisions that you made, you think about the decisions other people made and how that affected your life, now's the time when you can start to reflect. Now's the time when you can start to maybe change some perspective because we insert meaning into our memories. We insert meaning into our events and maybe the way that you perceive something in January is very different to how you're perceiving it in December. Maybe someone else's decision, maybe someone else's choice in April looks very different than what it does now. We have the capacity to actually examine things and, and bring about meaning to them. And that perspective changes. It did for Peter. It did for the disciples because no matter what we do, no matter how, we are affected by other people. We are deeply and profoundly affected by other people. What we do with that, we have far more control over that than we think and than we know. We'll keep reading. John 21. So they've had this meal, they've eaten something, and now Jesus and Peter begin a profound and life-changing conversation. When they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Three times. Three times. Why three times? Peter denied Jesus three times. In my guess, and sort of scholars and commentators tend to agree, that these three denials formed for Peter probably the, the foundation of his demise. So in and of himself, his idea of who he is, his belief, his self-belief, these things shattered after he denied Jesus. I think he genuinely loved Jesus and cared for him. But when push came to shove, his life was on the line and he was not able to hold on to those convictions that he had. They were strong, but they weren't that strong. They weren't, I'm going to hold on to these 
uh, until I die strong. Yet he believed that they were. And he's left broken and shattered. Jesus meets him even after they've gone back to their boats, even after they've lost hope. He meets him and he reaches out a hand to him and he offers him something. He says to him these three things that are going to be the foundation and the formulation of the end of your life. He says to him, I want to speak to you and I want to offer you three moments of restoration and healing. I want to take that thing which you are going to use to destroy you, that you are going to use to punish yourself, to crucify yourself, to be the justification and the reason for you to pull out of the game, to pull out of life, to remove yourself from engagement. I'm going to take these three things now and I'm going to look you in the eye and I'm going to offer you redemption and restoration. Because I don't think Jesus wants us, I don't think God wants us, and I don't think the Holy Spirit wants us to be a a group of people who are checked out. Who are checked out. The call for God is one to profound interaction with other people. Profound engagement, deep engagement. Peter would have used this as the reason, I think, to step out, to resign himself from people. And God steps in and says, no, 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 no. That's not the way. As we stand on the edge of one year, we look back, think about what's happened to you, think about what you've done, think about the decisions that you've made, think about the impact other people's decisions have had on you. What are you going to do with those Are they going to be the formulation? Are they going to be the the reasoning behind your withdrawal from family, from community, from human engagement? Have you got enough good reasons for you to be able to withdraw and pull yourself away? Have you got enough reason, enough good, solid, sound reason to get back to the boats and leave yourself there? Or will you heed the call of Jesus? And feed my sheep, feed my lambs, and feed my sheep. Because Jesus' call to Peter was for a whole new mission, was for a whole new challenge that was far beyond anything that he could have ever wrapped his head around. And the call from God is not that you can stay withdrawn and you can stay outside. The call from God is I want to redeem you, I want to restore you, I want to love you, and I want to set you on your way to do something substantial and significant. Friends, as we stand at this self-demarcating line within our year, you have the opportunity to look back You have the opportunity to assess. You have the opportunity to reflect. You have the opportunity to offer yourself a different perspective. And I think the call from God is one of redemption, restoration and healing in order for you to step into something different, something new, maybe something bigger, maybe something smaller, but certainly a movement forward. Because I think it's far too easy in life to check out. Amen? Let me pray. 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus, you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Jesus who stood and witnessed Peter's denial, the Jesus who died on the cross, and the Jesus who made breakfast, and the Jesus who spoke to Peter's deep and profound wounds, is the same Jesus who offered him restoration and healing. Is the same Jesus who offered him a new challenge for the church and his role and his place in it. Jesus, I, I believe that you are the same. I believe that you speak to what is painful in us and I believe that you offer us words of healing and restoration. I believe that you bring us to a place where we can enjoy and experience new challenge the big call is whether or not we will the big call is whether or not we will step forward the call is whether or not we will accept the words of healing whether we will accept a new perspective whether we will accept the risk of stepping forward as opposed to the safety of hiding and the safety of staying withdrawn There are times when we need to withdraw. There are times when we need to heal. There are times when we need to think and reflect. Absolutely. But the call is to re-engage and not stay stuck and not stay withdrawn. To re-engage and offer something to those around us. Holy Spirit, I pray that your words are convicting, that your spirit is strong and that we are able to hear that call to feed sheep and feed lambs and feed sheep, that call to re-engage, that call to reinterpret and engage with those around us. I pray that we will hear and that we will move. In Jesus' name, amen.